Welcome to this week's episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And today we're going to be kicking off Season 5 of Watch No Evil with an American favorite 1980s Friday the 13th, directed by Sean S. Cunningham, written by Victor Miller, and not yet starring Jason Voorhees as a serial killer. We actually have a little bit of a different film. Heavy, heavy, heavy spoiler alert if you have not seen this film yet. More... Spoiler alert than probably any film that we've done so far. So if you don't actually know the twist in the film, go watch the film and come back. Zach, let's talk about legacy of the film. When we were watching this movie, you asked a question, which is, how did this get sequels? Would you like to comment to that? So I knew the twist going into it. This is the first time that I've seen this movie. And I guess maybe not knowing the twist would have made this film have a greater impact on me. I don't know. Maybe that's how audiences at the time felt. Is that it's a pretty good twist, I think, in that it's a middle-aged woman that is the serial killer. And I think that that is a really great play on roles and stereotypes because you you see a middle-aged woman in a horror film, you're like, ah, safety. And that's when Mm -hmm. Alice finds her and runs toward her. You know, you're a middle-aged woman who absolutely wouldn't murder anyone, right? Yeah, especially since Alice, having not seen the killer, immediately trusts Pamela Voorhees. Right. And and we do get the perspective of Mrs. Voorhees when she goes to kill all the other counselors. And oftentimes it's like, oh, hey, like what are you doing here they're talking to her and she then kills them or attacks them or whatever and it's never the face clutching scream that you get that's so cliched in other horror movies which is refreshing on the other side of things it's a slasher movie that is not that adventurous outside of that twist it's just so vanilla it's kind of like copying and pasting that halloween formula and it just doesn't feel like it should have been as successful as it as it was and just knowing like the Jason Voorhees image and the references that we get from the sequels it's surprising to go back and look at the original film through this cultural lens and see it be the way that it is (laughs) and has aged this film lives in sort of like a a mid-ground inside of the slasher genre on the one hand you have the Halloween and you have the Nightmare on Elm Streets which take a look at serial killers through the lens of the hulking Frankenstein figure that slowly and silently and not really in Freddy's case chases down their soon-to-be victims. This film plays a little bit with that in the ingenuity and sort of the interest in the kills like slowly pushing an arrow through the back of Kevin Bacon's throat which I think is a very interesting kill the way that it was done the way that it was shot yes it's a little obvious now but pretty shocking and then it combines that with kind of the perspective of a couple of earlier movies one of them being I think Psycho by putting the camera lens in the killer's eyes we kind of get to see 
see what they are doing. A little bit of Psycho, a little bit of Peeping Tom, I think, in the the way that it extrapolates on the killer's perspective as the one to follow. And in a way, it kind of lives a little bit in that Jaws space by doing so. Because it really shrouds the killer's identity until the very end of the film. We never actually get to see the monster until that very, very end. And then it's it's a shocking revelation, which I think helped push the movie forward a little bit. It was neither Halloween nor was it Psycho. I feel like the pacing is just off kilter and not in a good way. You know, you get an hour into this movie and you're like, all right, who's this killer? Like, we've gotten no clues. There's been no actually scary image of the killer or chase or anything, which is unusual for a a slasher movie. And then we do meet the killer. And then there's this really drawn out fight hiding sequence between Mrs. Voorhees and Alice. And it's just like, okay, now I'm waiting for this part of the movie to end. And it's just too drawn out in that way. I also will say, even though I do appreciate the twist, it feels a little cheap because Mrs. Voorhees as a character had not been introduced at all, right? It was just the idea, just the history behind Jason's drowning. It just feels like, hey, we've introduced this character, Boom, she's the killer. She's been killing people the whole time. And it, oh man, I, I really wish it was someone that we knew. A lot of these whodunit murder films, whether they're slashers or horror movies or not, they have the foresight to introduce and build the villain character early in the movie or earlier in the movie. That's why she's like really not that frightening as a killer. <laughs> it is a gender-oriented rug pull in the same way I think that Sleepaway Camp is. I've not seen Sleepaway Camp. Well, it's another one that has a very specific... We talked about it. Matt, that was like two years ago. Well, sorry, uh, Mr. I haven't seen any movie ever. Well, doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't watching... <laughs> We're two years into this podcast and Zach has still not seen one single movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't watch any. I just like work off of context clues like, <laughs> based off what you're saying. Zach only is reading the Wikipedia and listening to my discussion. Honestly, I feel like I could do a pretty good job on that. You could do an even better job, though. So Sleepaway Camp, doesn't isn't that kind of referential to this movie? Not necessarily. Yeah, it kind of is, I guess. They, they do sort of relate to each other in that it is about the gender rug pull, right? And I think that, you know, you brought up Psycho. I think that this references Psycho quite a bit. It's kind of the reflection of Psycho, I think. And we even get that in the soundtrack. We're watching this movie, and at some point I said, I think it was really early on, I was like, this sounds like a Bernard Herrmann score. Yeah, I would agree, especially in the way that it is uh, accompanied. So there's that, um, that like rushing baseline, specifically the car drive scene of Psycho. I think Mm -hmm. that it tries to bring in, but it also brings in a little bit of like the Jaws soundtrack. I think that Manfredini Mm -hmm. was specifically going for a couple of motifs that John Williams used to indicate that there is this invisible menacing entity that is sneaking up on you. You know, we've mentioned so many horror films at this point, and we're only like 10 minutes into the episode. In a way, I feel like this movie for its time Maybe that's why it became such a wild success is that it's kind of this culmination of these big horror hits before it. I haven't talked about it yet, but I think it even makes some reference to The Shining. So you got The Shining. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Jaws. You've got Psycho. And it's like those are Halloween. Yeah. Halloween. Those are the big hitters at this point. And I think that 
this really does capitalize on the individual grains of success from those films in a way that doesn't necessarily work, but makes audiences nostalgic enough about those that it does kind of boost itself up to the level of those films. I think that in years past now, the things that remain true and like remain symbols of this movie are not the first one. It really is Friday the 13th Part 2. It's the hockey mask. It's the machete. So it set up like this enormous franchise, but the franchise almost is removed from the context of this first film. You could very well kind of remove this first film from the rest of them and it would live on its own entity because Jason Voorhees, as we know him, the hockey mask, didn't exist in the first one. Mm Mm-hmm. He was just a little... He was just kind of a little a little boy child. in a lake that didn't really <laughs> exist. And there's only a year between part one and part two. Oh, really? Yeah. In a way, it's taking a little bit of inspiration again from Halloween, but specifically Halloween 3, Season of the Witch, where there is a related theme, but it is detached from the first one, which then lets it stand alone as its own film. Mm -hmm. that doesn't require you to see the first one, which I think is partially a marketing thing too, because they want to be able to say, you didn't see the first film, that's okay. This one is a little different. And also it keeps the bread in the bread box, you know? It doesn't get stale then. And I think that's... (laughs) I have never heard that saying before. (laughs) Yeah, it's because I just made it up. Oh, wow. Bravo. (laughs) Thank you. Bread box. genius. I'm feeling so like... um metaphorical today yeah (laughs) meta and now i've ruined it the people who own facebook yeah yeah i'm uh jeff zuckerman (laughs) (laughs) i don't know why i said jeff what's his name zach mark mark (laughs) (laughs) some white dude name i don't know elon elon sucker (laughs) man elon Um, weren't they the uh weren't they the evil ones from the time machine Anyway, one of the things that I think this movie has as its strong suit and why it survived so well is because of the twist, right? That twist Mm -hmm. is, it's not on par with Psycho. It's just not. It couldn't really ever live up to Psycho because in Psycho, we hear so much about the mother and we see the visage of the mother throughout. When we actually get the twist reveal that Norman is actually dressing up as his mother all along, it's wild and shocking and brilliantly done. Because all of the seeds were planted so that when it came time to reap, they were properly grown. You know, Mm -hmm. you reap what you sow, they sowed good (laughs) seeds. This one did not. Now who's the Mr. Smart Man? Yeah, exactly. It is really interesting that it's the mother. One of the things, though, that is supposed to try and clue you into that is the sound that is, like, so integral to the soundtrack. The... the Mm -hmm. (laughs) Do you know what it actually is saying? Kill them? I don't know. That's what he's saying at the end. It's kill, ma. So it's coming from kill her mom. Oh, okay. That she says when she's like embodying him at the end, which I think is another reflection of Psycho, right? Because Norman at the end takes on the voice of the mother. Mm -hmm. And in this one, the mother takes on the voice of the dead child. That's where that sound comes from, where if you pick up on that early on, it's kind of like, oh, it was really deeply planted. The issue is... It doesn't sound anything like that's what this mm. is being said. No. <laughs> it, it just doesn't. It, it's... 
knowing that it's like, wow, that's really cool. But also like, there's no way anyone would figure that out unless someone told them that. That being said, how could we improve it? The reason I think that it gets distorted, there's a filter and a distortion that happens over those words that obscure the fundamental consonant. So you lose a lot of the formant shape and then some of the vowel shape. That's why we hear the ch instead of k because the K sound has a very specific harmonic series to it. Had they, instead of just distorting it and leaving it distorted, over the course of the film, opened up mm. that filter, you know, that low pass filter, if they had opened it up, it could have gone from ch 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 to so that you hear it transform over time. Yeah, I was going to say, like, when you started into that explanation, I was like, well, maybe they wanted to like obscure it. And maybe those syllables sounded creepier, you know, but yeah, I feel like actually hearing you do it. I feel like it, transforming it over time would have been like a really cool move because then you had that like aha moment, mm -hmm. maybe like right before Mrs. Voorhees revealed as the killer and be like, hmm. It gives you something, right? Because that's the thing that this was missing. Something to tell you what was going on. And I think that they could have planted it in the dialogue too. It had the adults that they met, you know, where the guy is like proselytizing. At the beginning, yeah. they're talking about him and that character. So you know that there is this greater town around the film. There are other characters in this movie. If we had heard at some point parts of dialogue that incorporated the people who worked at the establishment, the kitchen staff's son drowned, and that was why they closed. It's just like, oh yeah, the mother, Pamela Voorhees, ensured that no one could use the property ever again. Had we been given the seeds, we would have had something. It really does feel that way. And like, even if there had been like some cheesy dialogue that was like, oh, that poor mother or something, you know, just a little something <laughs> that would have put that, yeah, that seed in your mind. You, you bring up this town that's around or near the campgrounds. Yeah, there is this kind of like town folklore and superstition to Camp Crystal Lake. And I feel like that and then Ralph, who is that man that was proselytizing that you mentioned earlier, yeah. just kind of showing up and being, oh, you're all doomed. And it does kind of bring into play this idea of the evil place, that Camp Crystal Lake is cursed or doomed or whatever, and anyone who sets foot on it is going to die or whatever. That's why I mentioned earlier that it kind of references The Shining in that way. The, Shining, the Overlook Hotel, it's an evil place. I don't think that it's necessarily to the same degree in this case, but there is this idea that is planted. I think that from my very marginal knowledge of the sequels, that kind of holds through, right? As like the, the Camp Crystal Lake, this is the place where Jason and or Mrs. Voorhees function. They're kind of contained to it. It really is more the place than the actual like horror villain or villains. Setting is always really important. And for this film, Camp Crystal Lake is such an integral part to it. Again, it, it becomes a disparate element when we don't know who Mrs. Voorhees is. Yeah. And there's nothing particularly menacing about the Camp Crystal Lake area in the same way that not like a Tucker and Dale versus Evil or like a Cabin in the Woods scenario where everything that you see in 
the cabin, everything that you see in the campground area is dangerous. We don't get the foreshadow of danger ever, really, from any of the things that happen. The kills just kind of happen and are standalone. The biggest recurring one is the bow and arrow. Yeah, there's just like no mystery to it. Right, we get very little, and we don't have set dressing of sprinkled ideas of how kills are going to work. And if there's nothing dangerous in the area, we're not really afraid of the area. You think of Camp Crystal Lake. To me, Camp Crystal Lake is not scary. Sure, it's where it happened, but it's not the reason that it happened. Yeah, it's just like the isolation that makes it that way. You know, if we're going to compare it to The Shining, the Overlook Hotel, it's so isolated. It's on a mountain. That's kind of the rub at the end of it is, oh, how are they going to escape? You know, it's similar in, in ways. Like I said, it's not a perfect comparison. But then there is the superstition in the town. It's Surrounding it also plays on this idea of making the normal paranormal. Murder yeah. is normal. Yeah. That's really all that happens in this movie for the first 70 minutes of it. And then we get Jason, little boy, dolphining Alice off of the boat. That's really the only paranormal thing. And we're, we're kind of led to believe at the very end that it may or may not even have been real. Well, and when you believe in things that you don't understand, then you suffer. Because superstition ain't the way. Right. And, and that, I think, is... You know, it's, it's almost. <laughs> That's from Stevie Wonder. Yeah, no, I, it took me a second. Okay. Writings on the wall. Yeah, uh, right. I, well, you, you say that, but also it applies here, right? Well, the isolation is one thing. And you, you talk about the Overlook Hotel. You truly are insulated from the outside world. Camp Crystal Lake, part of the issue is they're not really stranded in the same way. No, not at all. It's not an insulated place like we have these like scenes of the run and hide but then the way that they do the run and hide stuff is very scooby-doo like when she's hiding behind what like the covered like cistern looking (laughs) thing and mrs Voorhees just walks past and then you see her like raise up and it's like all right if we examine the angle at which mrs Voorhees walked past if she had just looked 22 degrees to her left she would have seen her yeah, it's almost like you want that. <laughs> and then like the laugh track behind it that you get in like Scooby-Doo. The whole ending of the movie, I think, does kind of mess with the potential power of the movie as well, mm. because we see Alice, the final girl, just absolutely holding her own against Pamela Voorhees. Right. Pamela Voorhees, using a bow and arrow, was able to suspend a man <laughs> against a cabin wall. Right. It's the whole like, I have to monologue <laughs> thing, because she, she could have just killed Alice right when she saw her, right? She could have just stabbed her because she she like hugs her. In a way, it reminds me of how Freddy gets knocked around in Nightmare on Elm Street a lot. Freddy is not really a serial killer. And that's kind of part yeah. of his character, right? He is a little doofy. He's a little doofy. Mrs. Voorhees really clean kills up until that point. So like, what the hell? (laughs) But it is kind of a play with your food situation in the same way that I think that there is certain degrees of hesitation from Norman Bates. See, to me, that's more of an internal struggle and Mrs. Voorhees is committed. There's a little bit of an internal thing with her too. I don't see that as much. I'm not saying it's not there. Like, there's probably a little something there. I've only seen the movie once. If it's there, it's not there enough, is what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And again, 
Mrs. Voorhees, with a bow and arrow, suspended a man from a cabin wall, Zach. But Alice, three foot eight inches tall, weighing (laughs) 72 pounds wet, gets the jump on her, gets the better of her, is able to knock her around. And chops her head clean off with a machete. Machetes aren't that sharp. (laughs) They're not that sharp. Also, it's been used. Also, suspended a man using arrows. Was she like, okay, jump. What are the arrows made out of? Cedar? (laughs) Did she drill like guide holes first so that they can have some leverage? She like has the strength to lift him up and push an arrow into him at the same time to go through a door. Uh, The Kevin Bacon one, total sense. A sharp arrow, that one's fine. Those beds were proven to be flimsy. The one guy like punches through one to get the snake early on in the movie. Yeah, exactly. But Pamela Voorhees, and I don't know if I've mentioned this yet suspended a man <laughs> with a bow and arrow first i'm hearing of it <laughs> on a on a cabin wall the laws of physics bent that day like there was one in like his shoulder and one in his leg and if that's where he was shot oh i thought he had one in the eye too oh you know what you're right it was the eye and the leg one cannot be held up by the eyeball <laughs> Like, that's where the bulk of the weight would have been held up. I don't think that the eyeball is doing the lifting. <laughs> I No, I know it's the arrow. I'm just well, saying that part of your body is, well, I guess. Yeah, but you if said it's going being held up by the eyeball, Zach. If it's going if straight it, through the skull, I guess. It's being held up by the skull? But you know what I mean, the eye, the orbital socket, if you want to get technical. <laughs> yeah, but then it's just like, how would he not just slide forward and like have it just go through? Or, I don't know. Wall. Cabin wall. And in the air. (laughs) If he was just up against the wall and his feet were on the ground, like, sure. That's believable. He's pinned. It's not believable. But it is kind of cool. Maybe that's what they're going for. They're like, hey, what monster could have done this? And it's Pamela Voorhees. That's the real twist. They took a little bit too much time in the kitchen. That was just a personal gripe. What a weird time. As soon as I engage over the bow and arrow thing, you change subjects. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking it's just like they place Alice in the kitchen so much of that like ending sequence. Yeah. And she was like making coffee. Pamela Voorhees was, she worked in the kitchen. Also, Pamela Voorhees threw a full man through a window. Yeah, that's true. And didn't. Didn't get noticed. That's where Jason gets it from, right? Because Jason has, like, super strength. Yeah, super strength, teleportation. Actually, Jason gets it because he dies, and then lightning strikes his tombstone and his body. And And makes him not a little boy. (laughs) Yeah. But she throws a full-grown hog-tied man through a window. Which, another thing, the glass was not good glass for a cabin. It was really thin glass. You want thicker glass because otherwise (laughs) if you're out in the middle of nowhere you're dealing with the inclement weather there's a lot of this movie that just doesn't make sense from like an architectural standpoint why because why would you use hickory for a cabin i can only imagine that's expensive what how do you know it's hickory what the the wood it's the most delicious wood what (laughs) (laughs) 
you talked earlier about pacing and I do want to go back to pacing because I think that you had brought up a good point which is there's a scene where she just makes coffee for like eight minutes <laughs> it's too long oh yeah we watched Bill check the fuel level on the generator for like several minutes we watched the whole process with no dialogue whatsoever because he's alone he only has eyes for the generator and Alice seems very upset by that I get you want to hit that hour and a half mark. Like him checking the fuel level or her making the coffee. Who wants to watch that? It's not building tension. There's not something happening in the background or anything. They needed something at the lake. Nothing happened at the lake. Aside from the very end. And why'd she get into the canoe? Right. And they do say when she has her come to moment at the end that they did find her floating in the canoe. Why did she get into the canoe and then only row to the middle of the lake? There's no reason to get into the canoe at all, aside from getting that plot point in. It's like she got into the canoe, middle of the lake, and then fell asleep. These movies, they love to do the thing where when they wake up, the light has completely changed. It is as bright as it possibly can be. They had that in... Nightmare on Elm Street, too, right? The last scene, they all get in the car, and the car is like, and then drives off, and it's the Freddy yeah, car. Yeah, the car and fucking enters Mario Kart racing. Yeah, they do like to do that a lot, don't they? It's a fake out. Also, no blood came out of the Mrs. Voorhees neck right away. Yeah, it's like a lightsaber. But I thought you said that machetes aren't sharp. <laughs> yeah, lightsabers aren't sharp either. It's just light. The head starts coming <laughs> off way before it hits the <laughs> yeah. body, but that's a whole different... The, the cinematography budget was, like, not huge on this one, I'm sure. It's like they ran an air pump into where the jugular would be, and then just... It's just a little spurt. There's another thing that I wanted to ask, get your take on for this. Yes. Yeah, you. Oh, finally. The one other person in the room. Do you think this is a morality tale? There's a lot of reference to religion. Not a lot. There's some reference to religion. And there's also the, you know, she's killing the counselors because the two counselors were having sex while Jason was drowning, and that's why he drowned. And that, to me, is like, yeah, there's a bit of that morality in there. And I feel like this, more than the other classics, kind of leans that way. I think that there are parts of it that do lean towards that idea of being a voyeuristic morality tale. It fetishizes the violent repercussions of sexuality. Mm -hmm. By putting the camera in Mrs. Voorhees' eyes, it shows the consequences of their actions because they were having sex. They allowed one life to one person to die, so their lives are then traded. Discussion around drugs, too, I think sort of helps to... Oh, that cop wanted them to be on drugs so bad. Yeah, the cop really wanted them to be on drugs because that would have been another means of justification for all of the things that happened to them. But at the same time, I think that part of the issue is you can't totally say that this film was geared towards a morality tale because the target demographic of the film was most likely teenagers. Yeah, but I mean, so was I Know What You Did Last Summer. And I think this this kind of lies between Nightmare on Elm Street and I know what you did last summer in the morality themes. I think that the, the theme is differently because sexuality is such an important characteristic of this film. Sex is the reason that they deserve death. I don't completely agree because... Not all of them have sex. Not all of them have sex, but also the first one to die is Ned. He is the one who pretends 
he's drowning. He's mocking Jason's yeah. death. And he then therefore is the first to die because he has kind of committed the most atrocious offense to Mrs. So Voorhees. So do you think that that's the inciting incident for Mrs. Voorhees taking revenge? No, I think she would have killed them all anyways. But I think that's the reason she went after him first. Or he just also made himself a convenient target. I think that you do have to look at it is if the killer would have killed anyway then it is not a morality tale. But the thing is, in the intro, it's not like she killed all the camp counselors. She only killed the two. So maybe it was an inciting incident. I don't know. It's it's just kind of strange. The motivations behind it is like, why didn't she kill all of the counselors in that year after Jason's death? And why is she hanging around? It is sort of a vengeance story, right? So then the question is, if it's a vengeance story, why is she sticking around the camp? Does she really blame camp crystal lake for it or does she blame the counselors why wouldn't you hunt down the counselors hitmen like i mentioned earlier i think it's a lot of like references to other horror franchises because like in halloween halloween's absolutely a morality tale right oh yeah for sure and a lot to do with sexuality too but i think that this kind of takes a leaf out of that book or takes several leaves out of that book but it specifically in reference to the final girl being the more innocent more bookish yes, she, type. she is innocent she has done nothing wrong. We get her putting together that blockades the door, but she like does it with the rope. And, and she's kind of shown to be kind of crafty in that way. Her character is introduced with her nailing a gutter back onto a cabin. So it's like, ah, she's, you know, she's handy. She Yeah. And her na- tying the door, she actually used like a leverage mechanism. She right. had a whole plan. I, I mean, it would have worked if she had committed to the bit. <laughs> <laughs> no, but then she put everything in the room up against the door. He's like, this bitch is not getting in here. That part, w- that was the funny part too, because it was, it was just so like funny. the windows. And it's like haphazardly throwing stuff in front of the door. It's like in Scary Movie when they're ripping off Scream and she's just throwing everything she has down the stairs. Thank you everyone for listening to this special season kickoff episode of Watch No Evil. This is Matt. And this is Zach. And don't forget your water wings. Zach and Matt are two veteran horror movie enthusiasts discussing their favorite and not-so-favorite horror films. Scary movie fans beware, or listen to Watch No Evil. News, reviews, and deep dives of the television series and film franchises you love. Take a tour of the popular media world with Biggs and Brandon on Not Safe for Network. Charles is a Purple Heart recipient and cinematographer. Aaron is a professor and critical cultural scholar. Together, they explore the narrative, affective, and production politics of war cinema on The Real War Project. That's R-E-E-L, War Project. You can find all of these shows wherever you find your podcasts. You can find all of these shows on Redwood Sound Labs.